0: You're listening to the Faith Roots audio podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Well, I wanna welcome you to episode 13 of the End From The Beginning. We're talking about how that God foreshadows in the book of Genesis. Many of the things that happen in the last days, we see the same sequences. And there's a sequence here we cannot ignore. I debated as to whether or not I would put this in, but I thought, no, this is pertinent because it really has a big uh, correlation to the way we live here in the United States and in the Western world. We, We see a picture of ourselves here and I'll show you what this is. But I wanna go back to our text and lay the foundation again Isaiah 46.10, God says, I reveal the end from the beginning. He didn't say I reveal the end at the beginning. He said from the beginning and from ancient days, I reveal what is to be. So he says you can see what will happen in the way that certain people lived, and they are pictures of the future. Then here's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, King James Version. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. So Solomon writes that everything that is happening today has happened before in uh, seed form in some way or another. Now in the book of Genesis chapter 20, we see an episode between Abraham and a neighbor of his, the king called Abimelech. Abimelech is an appellative. It's not a, a proper name that was not his personal name. It's very much like the word Pharaoh. Pharaoh was just the name like king. Abimelech means uh, father king, abi. Uh, remember in the New Testament it says we cry, but with the spirit of adoption, abba, father, that av, that abi. That is a word for father in that language. And uh, in Hebrew, and, and, and also you see the evidence of that in uh, Arabic. And so this uh, uh, a king called Abimelech, Melech means king, and so he's called Father King. That is his name in his culture. That's his title, actually. So let's look at this. Genesis chapter 20 and verse 1, and I want to talk about when this happened. This happened after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham was camped when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. He was roughly on the same latitude and not too terribly far away from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and would have been able to see the smoke of the destruction of Sodom. It would have risen up. It would have been a huge thing. There is an ash layer at Tel Al-Hammam in Jordan, which we believe to be the site of Sodom, and it, it, it indicates an incredible amount of destruction that happened, and the smoke that would have arisen from this would have been visible for a long, long, long distance. Abraham was probably troubled, and keep in mind, Unless the Lord spoke to him by revelation, he did not know what happened to Lot. He was not uh, privy to all the details there. They were separated only later as this narrative laid down. So just because the narrative is laid down doesn't mean that Abraham knew exactly what all happened there. And so it's not a mystery that Abraham would have been troubled. He would have been bothered by what he saw and he would have realized, I was not able to save the city. There were not 10 righteous found in Sodom because I see the smoke. It's evident to me that something dreadful happened. But I also believe that he had an underlying belief that God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And he probably knew just in his heart of hearts that the lot did not die. All right, now Abraham journeyed from there to the south. He goes deeper into the south and away, a little bit to the south and west, away from where he had been to the Negev is where he went. He dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in this region called Gerar. Now Gerar was home to a group of people who eventually became known as the Philistines. They're not called Philistines just yet, but they will be called that in the days to come. And by this time, uh, Sarah had had a change in her body. Uh, We think that God just gave this old woman the power to bear a child, but in order for her to bear that child... And in order to nurse, she had to have a number of bodily functions restored. And so God, more than likely, set back the clock on Sarah's body, and it would have appeared that she was much more youthful. I mean, we very easily could have seen a 25, 30-year difference in the way she appeared. She and Abraham, too, for that matter. Uh, because his body was considered dead reproductively when he was 100 years old, and yet he was able to father a child. And so Sarah is expecting here. They haven't yet had Isaac, but he's coming. That will happen in the next chapter. Uh, And so uh, this is the setting that we see. Now Abraham is still operating in fear when it comes to Sarah. Uh, So this is what happened. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, "She is my sister." That was partly true, but it wasn't the whole truth. And Abimelech, father king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, uh, this would have been an act of of taking a woman into your harem. It would not have been an immediate relationship physically. Uh, he didn't know Sarah carnally; that had not happened. And I got to say uh, here, out of observation. I think that Sarah, no doubt, was a very attractive woman, and so that may have been why uh, Abimelech did this, but he also did it for political purposes, because in those days, kings would marry many women in order to forge alliances with other groups. Now, when I did my series on the blood covenant, I told the story... Uh, that I learned about when I was a very young man, when our pastor preached on the blood covenant, And he talked about the power of that covenant and how marriages often influenced uh, how two tribes got along. And there was an article that appeared in our newspaper, and it concerned a story of what happened in Indonesia. There was an American sociologist, a scientist of some kind or another, studying in Indonesia. And two of these remote tribes that she was studying uh, were were at war with each other. If their members encountered one another in the jungles, they attacked and fought, and many people suffered and died. She observed all of this, and what she did was she married the chief of one of these tribes. She did that. Then she went over to the other tribe, and she cut the covenant. She did a covenant ceremony with this tribe where they offered sacrifices, she made pledges and so forth, and she was empowered to do this now because she's the wife of the chief. You know what it did? It stopped the war. There was no more fighting. That's how much power there was in this marriage. Well, we see the same thing going on right here. This is Abimelech wanting to seal a deal with Abraham uh, by going after his sister because he fears Abraham. And he wants uh, Abraham to be his friend, not his enemy. And so that's why he takes Sarah. And so uh, this is uh, an indication of the blood covenant. Very fascinating thing here. And so he took her into his uh, harem in order to uh, expedite uh, political uh, uh, success. All right. God appeared to him in a dream and gave him a stern warning. Now let's look at this. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man, because the woman you have taken is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come nearer and he said, "'Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also?' Did he not say to me, "'She is my sister?' And she even herself said, "'He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this.'" And God said to him in a dream, "'Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart.'" For I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now, here's what's going on. God dealt with Abimelech because he says here to God, God, I have done this in the integrity of my heart. God did not question that. God didn't say, how dare you declare yourself righteous before me. God actually acknowledged Abimelech's righteous behavior in this. Abimelech was a God fearer. Now, there's something I want you to see in all of this. This is the second time that this happened in Abraham's life. It happened the first time back in Genesis 12, 13, when he went down to Egypt and he told the Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. In those days, she was called Sarai. And, uh, and, but God did act on Abraham's part in Egypt, but he didn't appear to the Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh was not a God-fearing man and Pharaoh probably would not have responded to God's warnings and his personal word. The thing that Pharaoh responded to was a judgment that came on the house of Egypt, and that shook them up. But there was no vision of God to the Pharaoh, but yet here there is a vision where God appears to the king, and it's because he was a righteous man. He was a God-fearing man. Now, that speaks volumes to me because it says that God does not just knock on the door of any human being. God deals with people because of an openness that there will be in him. When Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? Meaning that at some point, In Saul's life, probably just a few weeks before, and I believe it was because of the death and martyrdom of Stephen, Stephen's witness, his words, his behavior, the attitude that he had, the calmness with which he went to his martyrdom, that had to have a huge impact on Saul. And Jesus said, is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? In other words, Saul was already troubled. He was already having twangs of conscience when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And you can read about that in the book of Acts uh, chapter 9 is where that happens. And so uh, there seems to be something here of a spiritual law that God does not speak to people who have no relationship with him, but he does speak to people who do have a relationship with him and a Appearing, uh, It appears here that Abimelech had a, a, a an honor for God. He worshiped the same God. Now we sometimes read into these stories that uh, all of these people were heathen, and we think that they all were. In the beginning, many of them had a knowledge of God. God said about the neighbors of Abraham, the Amorites, I'm not going to give you their land just yet, for their iniquity is not full. Now later on, they became terribly wicked but it took about 400 years for that wickedness to manifest. And when the manifest wickedness reached its zenith, then God said, now I'll judge them. But it would have been unfair. They were Abraham's partners in rescuing Lot. They went to fight with him. So we see that God is just in all of his dealings. So Abimelech pleaded innocence, which God did acknowledge. Now, in Genesis 20 and verse 7, we read a, an amazing verse. He says, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live but if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So even though Abimelech had done some things in his righteousness, he was still being held to what we would call the Abrahamic standard. And whether you want to realize it or knowledge it or not, the Abrahamic standard is still in place today. And here it is, Genesis twelve three. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. That's what God said to Abraham. And you see God doing this even when Abraham failed. It worked whether Abraham was fully cooperative and fully in faith or not. God dealt with Abraham. Abimelech here, even when Abraham had been cowardly, because he had made this promise to Abraham I'll bless him who blesses you, I'll curse him who curses you. That's the Abrahamic standard, and we still see it today. We see nations that curse uh, Abraham's seed and that fight against Abraham's seed. They pay a price for that. They suffer for that. And here we are 2,000 years after the time of Christ, and this is still 4,000 years since God uttered these words to Abraham, and it's still very much in effect. So, what happened is Abraham prayed for Abimelech. Verse 17 So, Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and then they bore children. So, God shut up their wombs. This is very telling. The judgment that came is a picture of what the real issue was. The real issue was a threat against Isaac because Sarah is carrying Isaac in her womb. She's not showing yet, but she's conceived the baby. And the future of Abraham's people is at stake. So what does God do? He responds in kind and deals with the children of Abimelech because Abimelech has threatened the children of Abraham. And so that is a picture of what happens to people who fight against the the continuation of the children of Israel. Make no mistake about it, even if you're in the church, if you become an Israel hater and stand against what God is doing with the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob— And even though they're the natural seed, God has made a promise to them that he intends to fulfill and keep, and you cannot afford to be on the wrong side of that promise. We'll pick up here in just a little bit. See you then. Welcome back. In our first section, we established an idea, and it's based upon a promise that God made to Abraham. And by the way, the promise that God made to Abraham is called an everlasting covenant, and it works even to a thousand generations. And if you're wondering, we didn't even come close to a thousand generations yet. It it means in perpetuity. It doesn't mean that it only goes for a time. Some people think that it's over because a large number of Jewish people rejected Jesus in the first century, and especially the leaders, but that doesn't mean that this covenant's over. God has not forgotten what He said to Abraham, and you can read that in detail in Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11. But God said, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse him who curses you, and He still deals with nations Even though the leader may be a professing believer, he deals with them according to the Abrahamic standard. Now, a careful study of the Israel policies of modern nations shows that Genesis 12.3 is still very much in effect. Uh, I remember back, I think it was 2005, when Katrina hit uh, the city of New Orleans uh, the week before that happened, I remember there was a great heaviness that came into my spirit. I had a burden to pray. I prayed a lot uh, about that, didn't know what it was. It unfolded before me, but there were two things going on. And One thing I was very concerned about. At that time, under George W. Bush, who was a professing believer, uh, he ordered and pressured uh, the people of Israel to eliminate, for political purposes, eliminate all Jewish settling in the Gaza Strip. And they moved people out of their homes. They went in and forcibly evicted them. While this eviction was taking place, literally the same time, and uh, Ariel Sharon was pressured into this. He knew better than to do this. He'd resisted it for many years, but he gave in to this. And he, not long after this, had a stroke. And every Israeli prime minister who gives in to this pressure from the Western nations, in particularly the United States, when it happens, they suffer for it. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin made a covenant with Yasser Arafat in 1993 in uh, the fall of the year with uh, Bill Clinton uh, presiding in the White House lawn, And not long after that... Uh, He was assassinated. He was not blessed for the deal that he made to give up the land. Here's why. The land of Israel is not Israel's. It's God's. God said, this is my land and I've given it to you to use and they have no right to give it up. And God supernaturally delivered it into their hands. And if he did that, then it's not theirs to turn and give away at any time just because someone wants them to do it and even if it is a so-called God-fearing U.S. president or God-fearing British prime minister, doesn't matter. Uh, During that weekend that these Jewish settlers were evicted from Gaza, thousands of people in New Orleans lost their homes. They were evicted at the same time by a flood. And if you do a study, and there are some books written about this that are absolutely fascinating because they go into this in detail, and they lay out when U.S. presidents or U.S. policymakers issued a policy that was anti-Israel or denies Israel's right to the land, there is always a corresponding move against them. Uh, We see it with George Herbert Walker Bush when he pushed some things uh, to take the land away. He had an attack against his home in Kennebunkport, Maine, and it was a raging storm. Just amazing how that happens. And if they, you know, uh, you may not want to believe it, but at least go back and research it and look at it because you can see that this happens a lot. So the story of Abimelech demonstrates how that even a God-fearing nation can threaten God's plan for Israel. What he was doing with Sarah was threatening the birth of Isaac and where Isaac would be raised, and he did it in ignorance. And a lot of times our leaders do it in ignorance, and that's why we need to pray for our leaders. I'm not saying they're always evil people if they purposely do these things. Sometimes they're absolutely deceived, or they give in to political pressure because there are a lot of people pushing them. Listen to me. Compromise when righteousness is involved, never leads to good policy. I want to say that again. Compromise, when righteousness is involved, never leads to good policy. Never does. All right. So we see that when nations did this, they paid the price for it. Uh, Great Britain made a uh, declaration during World War One, that they would give all of what is today Israel and all of what is today the nation of Jordan. They would give it to the Jewish people for a homeland under the Balfour Declaration. As soon as the war cooled off... Britain changed its policies. They were largely influenced by Major T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He was very, very pro-Arab, very, very anti-Israel. And the British government throughout the 20s, 30s, and up until World War II, they, they moved against the very thing they had promised to do and they restricted Jewish immigration into what was then called Palestine. They kept people from coming in. There were actually uh, boats full of refugees, Jewish people who had escaped Hitler's gas chambers. They had gotten out of Europe, and they were refused entry into the land that God said was theirs. And, And listen, uh, Britain was an amazing power before World War II. After World War II, we witnessed it. We saw it that they began to lose the empire that they once had. They gave independence to all of the different colonies in Africa, Asia, South America, all over the world. They lost influence. They are not the empire they were a 100 years ago. And a lot of it had to do with their policies, even though they may have had some God-fearing leaders. This works uh, in Abraham's favor, whether the person who is making the decision is a God-fearing person or not, because even a God-fearing person can have a wrong policy. Now, this spiritual law is still set in motion, because Jesus Christ Himself warned that the Abrahamic standard will determine the future of nations, even in the future. And this is a prophecy of the tribulation period. Jesus is talking about this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. And this is verse 31. This is a lengthy narrative. I'm going to read this and I'll break in and comment here and there. But it starts with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. That is the second coming of Christ. That's not the rapture of the church. The rapture of church would have happened before then. He said, "...then all the nations will be gathered before him." This is at the beginning of his 1,000-year reign, the millennial reign. "...all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left." Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In other words, God has prepared this from the very earliest days, from the foundation of the world. This standard, the Abrahamic standard, God knew he was going to do this when he created the world. So it is an eternal thing. It's not just something that happened when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, even before then, it was set in God's mind he would do this and it's still very much set in his mind. And this is what Christ said, "For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked" and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, and take you in, or naked, and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, "'Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me.'" Stop. Now, this is incredibly important. This is not about personal salvation being born again. Those of us who are born again are born again because we put faith in what Christ did for us on the cross This is a righteous opportunity to live physically in the millennial reign of Christ. And no doubt these nations will have great faith in Christ as they begin this journey. But their righteousness is very much like the righteousness of Abimelech. Abimelech was a righteous king. He was an honorable king. And he didn't have all of the covenant blessings of Abraham, but nor was he completely condemned. He was righteousness as far as he knew. And these are nations that in the future will honor the children of Israel. Jesus said, you did this to the least of my brothers. And he gives one, two, three, four, five, six different things. Let me read it. I was hungry, you gave me food. That's one. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Two, I was a stranger, you took me in. Three, I was naked, you clothed me. Uh, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Those are six things. In the scriptures, six would always be associated with something that a man does. These are the good deeds. It's not the number seven. Seven is associated with God and his salvation, but six is associated with man. They did six good deeds, and because of the good things that they did, they're going to be rewarded for those good things. Now, this is not personal salvation. This is a blessing for blessing Israel, and there will be nations in the tribulation period that will do that. Now, let me keep reading. All right, the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer and they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them and say, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it, To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So these nations will not even be allowed to continue because of how they treated the Jewish people during this time of their great calamity and the tribulation. And Jesus is basically saying, this thing that I said to Abraham, I will bless him who blesses you, I'll curse him who curses you, it is still very much in play. So that's what we see in the story of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. We see that God is still dealing with nations. Spain is a great example. Spain was perhaps the most powerful nation of the world. Under the kings Ferdinand and Isabella, a king and queen of Spain, uh, Columbus sailed, discovered America. Spain came with great wealth uh, out of uh, the Americas, uh, found all kinds of gold. Um, uh, we're not uh, absolving Spain of, of any wrongs they may have done just because they found the gold. But here's what happened in 1492, not only did Columbus discover America, but what happened in 1492 is Ferdinand and Isabella uh, removed all the Jews from Spain, and they made them all leave. And if they didn't leave, they were forced to convert to Christianity against their will. And uh, they did this thing called the Inquisition, where the Catholic Church was uh, very corrupted in those days in Spain. And they went after people and forced them into conversions. They tortured people, and that's not God. And uh, they, they, they they were horrible and God judged Spain not long after this. It d- didn't happen immediately. And, th- and that's, that's the way righteousness is. Righteousness does not always reward you immediately, and a lack of righteousness does not always reward you uh, uh, instantly. Uh, it is something that takes time. Uh, it's like this. This is how sin works. Uh, Sin works where you take your hammer and hit yourself on the fingers and just pound them. I mean, really let it go. And you don't feel a thing. And In fact, it feels good. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. So very often, sin is a very pleasant thing in the beginning. But a week or so later, you're walking down the street, mind your own business, and all of a sudden your hand just begins to throb and you feel this intense pain. And because it's been seven days since you first hit your fingers, uh, you do not associate what you did with that hammer with the pain you're feeling now. That's sin. Why does God do it that way? Why is it that way? In other words, we don't always see immediate reward or immediate payback for things that we do. It is because God wants us to operate by faith. What does that mean? He wants us to believe his word before we can see it. He wants us to believe the results of his word before we feel them. That is the principle of faith. It is something that God does in people, and he judges nations by this. So it's possible that a nation could do something horrible to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, and not immediately suffer. But they do always come around to the standard of suffering that God shows in Scripture. It's all the time I have for this particular section, but we're not done. We'll be back in just a little bit. See you then. Now, as we wrap up this teaching on Abraham and Abimelech, Father King, Abimelech, uh, it is important to note something about intercession. And here we see, during this time of the sexual revolution, during this time of uh, of, uh, Abraham being threatened right before his son Isaac is born, we see the importance of intercessory prayer. Abraham was a prophet, and his primary focus as a prophet was not to predict the future for all the nations around him. His primary focus as a prophet was to be a representative of God and to speak to God and for God and to actually pray for people. And so when God spoke to Abimelech and warned him of judgment, even though he was innocent in it, he took Sarah away from Abraham and to marry her. Again, it was more of a political thing that he did than anything else. He was still wrong in doing it. God said to him, now therefore, this Genesis 20 and verse 7, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And um, he said, he will pray for you and you shall live. In other words, Abraham was able to pray, in a particular way and with a specific authority that Abimelech could not do for himself. He said, but if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God warned him, and this is what I want you to see in this whole story, and all of this, and we see it in what we talked about in the last section, we see it here again, and that is this, God uses representatives. He uses representatives. In other words, he will judge others by how they treated his representative. Jesus made that very clear, that uh, he used parables to teach that those who rejected his kingdom would be dealt with based upon how they treated him. And then he goes in to say that you will also have to answer for how you treated those who represented me. And uh, here's how Jesus did it with uh, the Apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus. He said to him on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? And he said, why do you persecute me? And uh, Saul had never personally attacked Jesus. He had attacked those who believed in Jesus. But Jesus said, you did this to me, This is the principle of identification. If you don't understand identification, there's a whole lot about God's plan of salvation that you will never get. The Bible says we've been raised from the dead. Well, when were you and I raised from the dead? When Christ was raised from the dead. God let Christ be a representative for us. I'll give you a case in point on TV right now. There are loads of commercials about people uh, who were around asbestos in their work, in their jobs, and they contracted a horrible disease called mesothelioma, and now there is a reward, a cash reward for people who suffered with mesothelioma. You don't even have to go to court to prove that the company that made these things, these products, uh, put people in danger by not being careful about what they made. They used asbestos without a lot of study and so forth, and they've been proven uh, culpable in court. Now what happens is you benefit from a representative. In other words, back there, I'm sure you could look it up and find it, uh, someone filed a case against those companies and proved their point and won the case. Now, because this was a class action lawsuit, all you have to do to benefit from this suit is to show that you too were like the person who sued in the original lawsuit. And when that happens, you get the benefit. That is identification. And it's something that we see examples of all the time. There is a representative. Uh, When a person is elected to Congress, they go and stand in Congress. It's important that they carry out the will of the voters who sent them. And uh, that doesn't always happen, uh, but it is supposed to happen. It is the law of identification. And so here we see the law of identification. God is telling Abimelech, Abraham is my guy. When you threaten Abraham, you threaten me. Therefore, I will deal with you based on how you treat Abraham. So Abraham had the ability not only to bring a judgment on someone, but also to bring great healing. And he had power to recover people. And he said, he will pray for you and you shall live. So the idea here is that a prophet or an anointed person who prays can change outcomes and avert judgments through his prayers. Now, the word prophet at this time in the book of Genesis has more to do with intercession than it did the foretelling of the future. And the word nabi, which is translated prophet, means an inspired man. In other words, a person who is moved on by the Spirit of God to see things and to say things. They see and they say. That's what a nabi does. And it seems that God puts the fate of other people into the hands of a single nabi. Now, this is fascinating to me. This is Ezekiel chapter 22. Verses 30 and 31, and this is what God said, "...I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land." In other words, there's an invisible wall that keeps destruction from a city or a country or a group of people. "...I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land." I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. So the whole wall does not have to fall down. It's when a piece of the wall falls to the ground, and there is a gap in that wall which now permits evil to come in. When that happens, God looks for an an anointed person who can pray so that that judgment is stayed and that gap is not exploited by wicked and evil spirits. So now I will pour out my fury on them, consuming them in the fire of my anger. I will heap upon them the full penalty for all their sins, says the Sovereign Lord. Now that makes it Sound like that God is just looking for any opportunity he can find to deal with people harshly. And that's not the case. And let me explain what's going on here. God operates in perfect justice. And he has to be fair in order to be consistent with his character. And this is where a lot of people stumble. They don't want to see anything that pertains to judgment or God dealing with sin, and they think of it as somehow uh, this is not an accurate representation of of Jesus. He wouldn't do this, but you you got that wrong. Uh, Jesus will deal with people in judgment. He didn't do it in his first coming, but he's going to do it in his second. But here's why. If God does not punish the sins of man, then he will have to stand accused forever for dealing with the sins of Satan, the one-third of the angels who sinned with him, and the other wicked people of all history. Since God is just and fair, he has to punish sin wherever it is. The good news is he has a different standard for man than he does for Satan. Satan has no hope because he sinned without temptation. And he and his angels purposely sinned. They were not provoked or enticed in it. And what this means is they are incapable of changing their minds. That's why there is no redemption for the devil, no redemption for fallen angels, no redemption because even if they were forgiven, they would never repent or change. The reason that forgiveness is open to mankind is because men have a hope of changing. And not all will, but many do. Because there is a hope of changing, God has an avenue of redemption. But that avenue of redemption is still tied to judgment. Your judgment, my judgment, fell on Jesus Christ. He is our representative. He is a representative of the human race. He stepped up and said, I will be punished for all the sins of mankind. This is why God allowed the world to fall out of favor with him through the sin of Adam, which was one sin. That's pretty harsh, don't you think? That he sins one time and he loses everything. But there's a reason why God did it on that level. He did it on that level so that it would take only the obedience of one to get it all back. And so Christ as a single representative, the single one, is able to bring back our salvation and complete acceptance of forgiveness. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about sins. He does. He hates it. He's a holy God. He can't tolerate it. But because he was willing to lay that judgment on his own son, that we have opportunity to be completely forgiven as though we never sinned. Now, let's go back to the story of Abraham and Abimelech here. Understand the mood and the mindset that Abraham is in when he moves into Gerar, away from where he had been, where he had seen the smoke column, where he knew that Sodom had been destroyed. He must have felt like a failure. God had appeared to Abraham and had given him an opportunity to pray for Sodom. He did pray for Sodom. And he made intercession six times, and six is the number of a man. It's a number of a man who comes up short. Abraham could have perhaps gotten a reprieve for Sodom had he go down to gone down to four righteous, but he didn't do that. There weren't, uh, you know, there weren't ten righteous, and so the judgment, the city was destroyed. So when Abraham moves away from Sodom as an intercessor, he may be feeling like a failure. But what I want you to see is now that Abimelech has sinned against God, even ignorantly, God lets Abraham stand in the gap once again to be an intercessor for uh, Abimelech. So every nation has a tipping point where their sins become so great that judgment must be poured out. And the bowl is tipped because it gets filled up with sins, and God tips the bowl, and He lets the effect of those sins happen. If we're not careful, we grieve over people that we could not save. Abraham could not save Sodom. What if he'd spent the rest of his life grieving over, I couldn't save Sodom, I couldn't save Sodom? Well, that was on Sodom. That's not on you, Abraham. But now he comes to Abimelech, and Abimelech is a country and a nation that he does save. And by the way, the people of Abimelech become the Philistines. And it's interesting that even though they turned and became an enemy of Israel, they were still there because God had made a, or Abraham made a covenant. With Abimelech later. We read about it later where he and Abimelech made a covenant and, and they were not driven out. God didn't say, I'm giving you the land of the Philistines. He didn't say that. God said, I'm going to give you the land of the Canaanites and the Amorites and all the otherites, but not the Philistines. It is because of the covenant that God saw and witnessed between Abraham and Abimelech that happened later on. Now, when you grieve over one that you could not save, you will miss the opportunity to save the one who can be saved. And that's what we see in the story of Samuel. Samuel grieved so much over the depravity of King Saul and the loss of King Saul that he almost missed what God wanted to do through David. Listen to 1 Samuel 16:1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king from among his sons. What a great lesson. Now this is what I want you to take away from everything we've talked about in all 13 of these lessons. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Holy Spirit anointed follower of Christ, you too are a nabi. You don't have to be a specially called office holder intercessor. Any believer in Christ can be an intercessor. And during these times when we see wickedness in our midst, and we see people doing things that are um, disgusting and evil, and and things that deserve judgment. It is important that we learn to pray for these people. Some of them you will be able to save. Some of them you'll be able to see God work. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't say there's no hope. Listen to me. We are surrounded by people all over our culture who do have hope, who came to faith in Christ that many years ago they would have been lost, but someone prayed. And those prayers are never cast away. tell you a little story, and then I'm going to close. I think it was about 1981, I was coming home from a meeting that I did in Missouri. I was driving in southwest Missouri on my way back to Tulsa. And as I neared the city of Carthage, I thought about my grandfather. That was where he was raised and had family members still there. And I just happened to think about it. That's interesting that I'm passing through where my grandfather grew up. I had not been in that city, hadn't uh, had any dealings there, but I heard something in my spirit and it got stronger and stronger. I could hear a woman's voice and she was saying, Lord, I pray that all of my children would be saved. Lord, I pray that all of my children would be saved. I understood eventually this is my great-grandmother. And her prayers, even though she died in 1948, and this is 1981 and 80, 81, 82, somewhere in there, my prayers were still very real. You know what I did? I pulled into Carthage, and I got to the phone book, and I looked up where my great-uncle, my grandfather's brother, lived. My grandfather had passed on to be with the Lord, but I found his brother, who was not walking with God, knocked on his door met with him, talked with him, prayed with him outside his home there in Carthage, Missouri, back there in the early 1980s. And I had opportunity to affect three of my grandfather's brothers uh, because of those prayers. Those prayers do not die. God hears those prayers, remembers those prayers. You have a lot more authority than you think. You could stand in the office of an nabi. That doesn't mean you foretell all the future, but you can have an impact on the future by your prayers of intercession. And don't ever forget that. Thank you for being with me in this series. We'll have another one coming up very soon. I hope you'll follow me then. See ya.